Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jason Solomons, a film critic and TV presenter, and it's my absolute privilege uh, to welcome you to a wonderful night at BAFTA to celebrate a very special life in pictures of one of the most versatile, prolific, and eclectic uh, uh, actors on British screens. The directors he's worked with include Steven Spielberg, Woody Allen, Stephen Frears, David Mamet, and Ridley Scott. The actors he's worked with include Sir Michael Caine, Tandy Newton, Angelina Jolie, Denzel Washington, John Cusack, and Sir Anthony Hopkins. I suppose it's inevitable that now he's directing and starring in his own film, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the man himself, Chiwetel Ejiofor. As you can see, there's uh, uh, countless films that we've got to cover and some we're going to have to leave out, and I feel terrible about those already. What I'll do is I'll talk to Chiwetel about those films. Uh, some of the, uh, we'll see some of those in action and go deep into those film stories behind them, uh, how he came to, to be in them and what they was like. And then um, we'll, uh, we'll throw some questions open to you guys as well at the end. So if you think of anything as we're going along, store it up for the, the Q&A section at the end. Uh, I should mention he's also got a BAFTA for Best Actor. He's got an Oscar nominee, an Emmy nominee, a five-time Golden Globe nominee. He's got an Olivier Award and an OBE. Don't blush now, <laughs> it's gonna get worse. An OBE. Um, that's quite a mantelpiece. Wow. Not already. Um, yes, you, you've probably forgotten all of that stuff. The directors you've worked with and the, the, the actors you've, you, you've starred alongside, they're very eclectic, sort of surprising when you look back over it. Was it always movies you were dreaming of? Um. Thank you. Thank you for all of that, actually. And thank you all for, for being here. Amazing to see that um, collection of films and uh, wonderful. Um, it wasn't at all, actually, what I, when, I was, when I was starting and when I, you know, I started out going to the, to the after you know, high school and doing plays in school, I went to the National Youth Theatre from when I was about 16. And my ambition was to be a theatre actor, you know, exclusively, really. I had no thoughts really of being a film actor it didn't seem plausible to me for whatever reason mm -hmm. at that point and um and so that's what i pursued in, in at the national youth theater at school and then into into drama school that was really um <clears throat> what i thought about it and was, you went to drama school yeah i went to uh, to to the, to the london academy to lambda yeah. well, was that encouraged by your family was that they, they think well this is a bit odd he's going to this artistic <laughs> career maybe you should do something else yeah no it wasn't encouraged by my family <laughs> Um, so you know, it was a fr it was a fraught and complex and uh, slightly contentious moment. But then I, <clears throat> I, you know, but it was it it had become over a period of time just what I spent my time doing, you know, uh, and and that did start to change my you know um, my mother's relationship to it as a concept, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it just, it just sort of bled into everything that I was doing. I was just obsessed with it, obsessed with theatre, obsessed with doing plays. It was, what I, it was just what I was, the engine. What did, what did you find, what, with the, the young Tuatel, who we don't know, what did, what did he find when he stepped on the stage for the first time? I think I found a way of, um, just a, a manner of self-expression that I didn't have access to in any other way. Um, and I found real understanding of, of temperament, of energy, of, 
uh, of just the psychology of where I was and what I was feeling, you know, in the literature. And that combination, I first sort of fell in love with, with drama in, in an English class, mm -hmm. you know. I, I sort of fell in love with it as a concept of, um, of understanding plays and playwriting. I thought, I remember thinking when I was 13 that I, had, that I was the individual who had discovered Shakespeare because I was telling everybody, well, you've got to read this guy. He's really speaking, you know, <laughs> on a certain level. If you, if you look past the sort of yeoli stuff, he's really talking about you and me. And people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. William Shakespeare is well known. <laughs> uh, he's quite good. At, at, this, at this point, you know, he's liked. Was there, and I asked if you were growing up in, in South London, but were there role models for this? I mean, not, not just your family sort of saying, well, there's no one in their family going onto the stage. It's a bit risky. But in terms of black actors in Britain at that time, were there any you looked up to? Were there, did you see yourself, or did you not even see it? That way, did you not think? Well, I, you know, I, because I'm black, I can't do this. There's no barriers to. I remember seeing um, there was a Linda Laplante, there was a Linda Laplante series called Civvies. I haven't thought about it for a while, but the Linda Laplante series called Civvies, and I must have been, God, what was I? I mean, uh, teen, early teens, maybe. Mm. and um, and Lenny James was in it. And I remember there was one moment that Lenny James says, "You know, I can't believe this is going down." <laughs> And I just remember going into school the next day and saying that line, you know, a hundred times. To anybody who'd listen, they'd say anything. I'd say, oh, you know, I can't believe this is going down. <laughs> and, uh, and it was the first time, really, that I saw anything like myself represented on screen. And I didn't have a word for what I was feeling about that at the time and maybe for several years afterwards. But, I, but it was the first time I felt connected to whatever people were doing on television or what, people, what was going on. And, um, and it was deeply exciting, you know. And there wasn't, back in that time, you know, there weren't really words for that. There weren't, people weren't talking about representation. Yeah. They weren't really talking about role models in acting. They weren't talking about any of those things. But it felt real. It felt very visceral. It felt very kind of honest, so. It's fascinating you say that, because Steve McQueen, who you, who you know, I know you know, I know the director, <laughs> he, he's Linda LaPlante's Widows, yeah. which he's just remade as a, as a, as a, as a big thriller. He, he felt that connection because there were there was, there was a black actress in that, and he felt connected to it somehow, again, without realising it. Yeah. So there must be a certain sort of contiguity there, which is fascinating. Well, there's Linda LaPlante, you know. Yeah. There we are. Thank, thank heaven for Linda LaPlante. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. she, she plants the seed. There yeah. we are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't work on it. <laughs> What's fascinating to me is that I know that you, you then went to stage school to Lambda, is it Lambda? Yeah. Uh, but not for very long. Why, right. why, I mean, you got in, that was, must have been really hard and you must have been delighted to get in. Yeah. Uh, but then you left. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was Spielberg, <laughs> you know, it was Steven Spielberg who, um, who was, was casting Amistad. And we, uh, I was in my first year at, at, at Lambda and it was, as you say, <clears throat> a very exciting time very new and I was very kind of settled and engaged with everything mm. that was going on. And then, uh, and there wasn't really, um, you know, this sort of auditioning process came about for, um, for Amistad. And um, we were allowed to audition. It wasn't, you weren't really allowed to audition whilst at drama school. But we were permitted to, a few of us were permitted to audition because mm. it was a Spielberg film and because the idea was that it would be very good auditioning practice to, to go and to do this thing, and then we'd come back to drama school, you know. But 
obviously I didn't expect to and nobody expected me to get the part. And that was this whole other universe kind of opened up, you know. Um, it, was, it was very incredible and exciting and, um, and, uh, and I was sort of gently terrified, I remember, you know, walking around the streets of London at 19, having heard that I was going to be going off to Los Angeles to make this Spielberg film, convinced that I was going to get hit by a bus, convinced. Mm. You know. I, I mean, interesting enough, it's so quick that, you know, many actors go through 10 years of not getting parts that when it suddenly comes, they can't believe it. You must have felt, ah, this, this, this is what happens. You get <laughs> selected by the world's greatest storyteller. Yeah, no, I think even I was aware that this was, a, you know, a, a very kind of rare and surreal experience. And this, uh, uh, this, I, and but I knew at that moment, I kind of guess I felt that there was something so unpredictable about this profession. That happening was just not connected in any way to any perception that I had of what a career as an actor would offer me, you know, in any, in any way that I could see, um, or any example that I could hold up, or anything like that. But I mean, was, you, you mentioned your mum sort of not being sure whether this was a good thing, are you ringing her up and saying, ah, she's going to work for Steven Spielberg? It's not like I've That was the day she changed her mind. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the check. Um, he's a crucial part. James Covey, yeah, who was a, a major part of that whole time. In the, uh, is, yeah, is, is he a real-life character? He is, yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. And you got to work with Jaiman Honsu there. Uh, I don't what what dialect that was that you were speaking there. That we were speaking a language of Sierra Leone. Mm. Yeah, because I, I, I will come back to that because you you do quite a lot of African dialects. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get, get given lots of African dialects. Was it that that what do you know what Spielberg saw in that beautiful young face? I never asked him. I, didn't, <laughs> I just you know I didn't mention. I um, you know what I I, I don't know. I, I it was. I remember reading that part, and I felt just very, I don't know, for, for one of those reasons, you just, I felt very connected to that part, to, mm. to, to James Covey and his journey and, and what he was trying to, um, to do. He was, um, he was sort of an ensign. He'd, he'd been rescued off a slave ship when he was very young. Um, so he'd spent a lot of time in the States. And so when the Amistad Africans arrived, he was able to, to speak both languages and then got brought into this circumstance as a translator for the Amistad Africans. Um, and then, you know, then his life sort of derailed as well afterwards. And so he was just a very interesting character. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating start to your career, but I, I feel it was quite an influential start to your career, not only because it was Spielberg, but because of Jaiman Honsu, because of the story that it represented. And there, there's a connect, I don't know if your family was connected with slavery, the Nigerian journey, but that African journey to, the, to America seems very connected to anyone who's had that experience. I don't know if it, it informed, uh, there's a certain intelligence that comes out of the, the performance there that it really seemed to, to impact on you. Well, there's a kind of, I think there's just a diaspora experience, you know, an African diaspora experience, and, that's, and that stretches, you know, across the board. And, um, and so I always felt a great deal of empathy with anybody, with any character that was engaging in that kind of, in that, in that sort of totality and the kind of holistic nature of that. And so... Um, so from the time of reading about the Amistad Africans, you know, I was just very inspired by that journey. Did you know about journey. them before? No, no, yeah. from as I hadn't, no. you know, I didn't know anything about it until that audition and then starting to, to sort of read about it and obviously learning lots about it in the experience of, um, of that first journey to, to Los Angeles.
Uh, it's an extraordinary film, I think, Amistad. One of his not, not forgotten movies, but less celebrated movies. Yeah, even that Bill sequence is, is just lovely, yeah, you know, just beautiful. the way that. And, and I wonder, you, you mentioned that you, you did plays at school and then you were at Lambda. Presumably you've not been on a, certainly not on a big movie set, maybe you'd shot some movies with some friends, I don't know, but I mean, to arrive on a Spielberg set for your mm. first, first one with Anthony Hopkins, with a young Matthew McGonaghy, who you were later entwined with, because I think he... He beat you in Dallas My for Dallas Buyers Club. No the Oscars. Only at the Oscars. <laughs> not, not at the Baptist, <laughs> yeah. but at the Oscars. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but that's a bit, you know, he was a young actor at that time, you know, starting out. As well. what, what was it like going on that, that set? Because I, I don't know if you were experienced in the, with cameras and movies and the huge, hugeness of a Hollywood production. It was absolutely incredible. You know, uh, it was a, a sort of amazing time and an, and an eye-opening time for me as well. And, you know, it was um, being on the set, being with uh, Spielberg, obviously, with Steve Zalian, but then this, you know, Anthony Hopkins, Jaiman, Matthew, as you say, all of these people, and uh, Morgan Freeman was in the film, and just all of these kind of heroes of mine suddenly sort of around and, uh, and available and chatting over coffee. And, you know, it was a really remarkable... A remarkable time and a, and a sort of crazy introduction to Los Angeles as well. I didn't drive. I was at the Universal Sheraton, for those of you who know where Los Angeles is. It's on City Walk, which is nothing there, really. It's just a strip mall. And I, I thought that was Hollywood, you know. And I spent months there thinking it was the kind of greatest place on earth. Or, you know, the Rock Garden Cafe or whatever it was called, you know, the Hard Rock Cafe. And, mm -hmm. You know, so it was a very str a, a surreal time, a strange time. And in its own way, an alienating time mm. of being of being out there on this movie and being kind of separated from everything, but um, but also just an amazing opportunity and so and such a sort of rich experience. What what are the takeaways from something like that? I mean, did you think, well, I'll, I'll stay in Los Angeles, and because you didn't, you, you you came back and you were in small British movies and 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 stage productions. You were in it was an accident, for example, that was set in Walthamstow. Yeah. You were in GMT, which is set in tower blocks. You you came back and did your your small British indie films. And theatre. You know, I still hadn't fulfilled the ambitions that I'd had to be in, in on stage. And, uh, you know, and it's that Bob Dylan thing. I was much older then. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm younger <laughs> than that now. And I, so I made a, a very strong decision to say, well, you know, I don't want to stay in Los Angeles. You know, I do want to go back to, to London and I want to try and fulfill some of my ambitions in theatre and then see where that um, you know, what, what happens from that. And, you know, my initial plan was to go back to drama school and to finish the course at Lambda. And then when I got back to Lambda, it then just sort of transpired that that didn't totally make well, sense. Well, you beaten up in the playground. I don't think they do that at Lambda. Who he thinks he is coming back here? Often. I think that could have happened <laughs> after a while, but it didn't happen immediately. And, um, you know, but it was a decision. It was, you know, to then come out of drama school and to start working as an actor at that point and, uh, um, uh, and, uh, and exploring all those things, you know, going to the National Theatre and um, uh, doing plays there, ending up in, doing, in, you know, in the West End doing Blue Orange and, mm. uh, and at that same time starting to work on, on film in a, in a slightly different way, in a more engaged way, yeah. The next film that we're going to see is probably what is regarded as your breakthrough role, certainly the one I remember most being absolutely stunned by your performance in, even though I'd seen you coming up and seen you on the stage in Blue Orange. Uh, it's Stephen Frears' Dirty Pretty Things from 2002. Uh, a, a revelationary film in that in, no one had really told their story before. Mm. It kind of opened, opened many people's eyes to that, to that situation. Was that the same for you? Yeah, I mean, I, 
<clears throat> I just remember reading Steve Knight's script, you know, and um, and just and feeling that it was something that was very different to anything that I had um, that I had read. Very honest and really understood London. It understood the migration experience in London. It understood something that was very deep and, and very truthful um, uh, about the city and had been um, very hidden. It wasn't, in, it wasn't in the movie dialogue at all, and it wasn't part of the kind of conversation, even really on a sort of cultural level, really. Yeah, any societal kind of, level, people didn't really talk about. It wasn't engaged with, you know. Um, and, and it started that kind of concept of, uh, of this idea of looking at parts, looking at people, looking at ideas, you know, with this sense of not, you know, not what people are, but who they are, and really trying to get underneath the skin of things and, um, and trying to uncover something of the truth of people um, uh, through drama. Mm. You know? uh, and I think that's what you know, Steve Knight did brilliantly. Obviously, Stephen Fears uh, you know, transferred that to the screen in this, uh, in this remarkable way. A great film, I think. Uh, Ogway, the, 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 the character. Tell us a little bit about him and how you got under his skin. Well, I felt connected to him, you know, you know, through my father, really, who was um, was also um, a doctor, but was able to kind of exp explore that as a doctor here. But um, you know, in the way that Okwe wasn't able to explore that, uh, and ended up being, a, you know, a cab driver. But the um, but I felt that connection. I felt that connection from Nigeria because of the migration experience. I felt the connection of the trauma, you know, that in in Okwe's life because of the Biafran war that my parents had, had uh, experienced and then had left um, Nigeria not long after the Biafran war, but it was a, 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 obviously a seminal part of their upbringing. And, uh, and then the dynamics, the racial dynamics, you know, the kind of the frustrations of that within, the, within England, within London, within that community and that, um, that expression of self. Um, all of those things I was aware of growing up. Some of those things I experienced, but not with the um, not with the acute nature of the feelings that that my that my parents had, and um, or the circumstances. You know, so Okwe for me really represented all of those things. It represented uh, an older generation uh, and a sort of um, a real sort of frontline experience of it's, all of it. It's funny that you say that because when I just was watching it there, I've seen it recently again, but just watching it there, have it juxtaposed to your, your debut role, the, the, the aging, even though it's only five or six years in between the parts, you look oh, much older there. Okwe has the age, he has the, the weight in him. Was he in some way uh, an homage to your, to your dad? Is, is that Absolutely, him? absolutely. Because your father wasn't, wasn't there, obviously. At yeah, my father had passed um, you know, a few year, um, several years before. Um, and so, yeah, that it was very much an homage to my father. And that age thing is interesting, you know, that um, Stephen Frears still says to me whenever I see him, he's like, you're just about old enough to play Okwe now. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, it's true. There was a sense of really carrying something of, a, of another generation and of, uh, and of an older generation there for me that was just a very important part of that story. Yeah, I think that, that may be what, brings, what brought such gravitas to it, but also the tenderness and sweetness to you really, I really when, he, when he appeared on the screen for the first time, I remember thinking, you really understand this, this person as an audience and you as an actor really inhabited him. Yeah, but there's something as well that is true about directing. And, and I think that with that experience with, uh, with uh, Dirty Pretty Things and with um, Stephen Frears, you know, it was the first time that I understood the poetry of 
of film directing, you know, the poetry of a director uh, engaging with an actor in a certain way. There was a scene in the film that was um, a very tense scene, a very fraught scene with myself and Audrey, and I'm shouting at her, she's going to sell her, her, her kidney. She's, you know, it's all of this kind of... And I'm screaming at her, and I remember Stephen coming up to me and saying, you know, I thought that scene was very good. You know, it played very well, but I want you to do it again, and I, and I want you to hold her this time. Not physically, you understand, just hold her. But do everything else the same. And, um, and obviously that just informed the scene in this kind of beautiful way. I had to process it for a second, hold her while I'm shouting at her, but don't physically hold. Um, and so that process of working with the director who was able to do things like that, to say things like that, to open up scenes in a poetic way, in an engaging way. Mm. Um, you know, Chris Menges, who shot the film, uh, again, you know, understanding that, that sort of visual storytelling, uh, engaging with filmmakers of that caliber, you know, really allowed the, the I suppose, my love of the process of making films to, to really begin in earnest at that mm. point. And you were, yeah, because Stephen is, is he's, he's such a versatile director. He'd done My Beautiful Laundrette, which I suppose that has a sort of similarity too in that it tells a sort of racial story of, uh, of London. But he also can turn his hand to dangerous liaisons and uh, you know, anything like that. He's extraordinary uh, as a director. An auditor too, coming off the back of Amelie. Absolutely. Completely, which was one of the, you know, the Oscar-nominated film and uh, a BAFTA-winning film. She was completely different in that. You know, really changed the way that we, we view her. She wasn't just the winsome French girl. She was a really fragile Turkish immigrant. In that Absolutely, one. a very kind of grounded performance, very engaged performance. You know, um, and um, you know, and that was you know, uh, Sophie Okonedo is in the film as well, and Benedict Wong, and and all of those performances just sort of working in that little unit that we were working with was. Um, just had a certain energy and a kind of power to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, people bringing their real kind of experiences and their sort of antecedent experiences, you know, the kind of a sort of historical experience to to these roles, to these parts. I think it was quite quite groundbreaking film for, as we say, we hadn't really talked about it on film or even, but it set the tone for British film, London film for the new millennium. We're going to look at this multicultural pot that we've created, and we're going to be honest about it on screen. Yeah, and it was a certain that there was a certain t it was a certain time. You know, it was just after 9/11. You know, it was it was a certain time when I think people were engaged in a more active way of of looking at our society and um, uh, in a slightly more forensic examination of what was going on and what the tensions were. It also meant that British film was alive and well, and that you could we hadn't lost you to LA. You were still here making movies in Britain. There was quite a thriving, it still is obviously quite a, but a, quite a thriving scene. In the past, British film had had sort of spurts of activity and then, then it sort of dies down. But then it was really on the, the British Independent Film Awards, which I think you won for this. It was a real crest of the wave stuff. We were leading the way in Europe. So I think that was exciting that we could have you know, keep keep that here and distill it in in that film industry. Yeah, it was definitely an exciting time. I think an uh, exciting time for British for British film. Mm. I think I, I remember that whole s season of films and that kind of real genuine excitement. This real cusp of this understanding of film and this kind of move forward. You know, it was amazing. The next film we're going to look at is so brilliantly different as a role. Uh, I was so glad when you when you appeared in this film. Uh, it's the film Kinky Boots, which um, you may know. You may know it as a musical, you know. It's hugely successful as a musical, both on Broadway and here. 
It's won Olivier's and, and Emmys for, uh, not Emmys, um, Tony's for Best Musical. Um, it's had an extraordinary life, but it started, of course, as a film directed by Julian Gerald and starring this man here as Lola. Um, a, a wonderful part. Yeah, fabulous part, yeah. Did you, was there any reservations about taking it from your point of view? None at all, no. I was, um, I was so excited to, to, to play Lola and to just to have the opportunity to, to do it. And, um, you know, I, um, I auditioned for Julian, Gerald, you know, and I brought my wig with me and I was, I couldn't have been more kind of excited and engaged with it. And I thought that it was uh, just a, an amazing opportunity, you know. Uh, as a film, I think it was kind of ahead of its time in its own way. And, um, and, and I think it was really a strong piece of work. You know? It's interesting because you see that there, that it's very much a British workplace comedy from I'm All Right, Jack, and almost a bit of carry on in there. But of course, it's got this very, serious industrial uh, social realist edge running through it because it's about the factory closing down and it brought this color to to a genre that is can be very sort of serious and yet it's very british and it really played with that yeah and uh, and i think it had really strong thematic qualities uh, you know and and qualities about inclusion and um, and you know things that we are consistently sort of wrestling with and ideas that we're wrestling with you know but and they were right in the heart of that film and and as you say done with a kind of humor and um, a sort of nostalgia as well it was very interesting um the boots themselves mm. you did get to wear not not those ones but they they, they made you some some boots yeah uh, beautiful boots a lot of, and a lot of them i think in the stage show that now there are 200 pairs of, of of boots that you've inspired these boots well do you remember having the fittings was it patrick cox did them the sammy sheldon sammy sheldon was the yeah. costume designer but there was lots of sort of famous shoe designers oh right they, they, they kind of got them to kind of do different different stilettos and different heels for fantastic. you fantastic no i didn't I didn't got, know any of that. Have you got any? Still? <laughs> I do have a pair of the boots, yeah, that I um, that I lost for a while, but I have them. I have them back now, which is quite exciting. I was taught, uh, you know, there was a conversation about me doing the, the going on stage, yeah, you know, well. and doing the whole kind of. Um, uh, but you know, the trouble for me was that it's it's a kind of. I think it's like a, some of them are six inch heels, you know, and I just was convinced I would die essentially. Like, <laughs> Just that the idea of dancing in heels, you know, I mean, stilettos of that size was Im Im an impossibility for me, but yeah, exciting. But you've been to see the stage, the stage. You know, I've never seen it, actually. I actually never saw it in the end. Is it good? It's good. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's, it's, it's different to the film, because it, 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 the film wasn't, didn't explode into, into huge success as a, as, a, as a musical, because as you see, there's a lot of source music with Nia Simone and lots of other Sure. Songs. And then they re Cindy Lauper wrote the songs. Absolutely, the yeah. No, no, I was meaning to for a long time, and then it just sort of, um, it didn't happen. But uh, can I still see it, or is it, is it still around? Or not? I think it's closed okay. now. I think maybe on Broadway, actually. It's still, okay. going, still going to April on Broadway, in fact. I Googled it. To, 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 um, <laughs> yeah. I'll get you a ticket if you want. Uh, the, but the idea, what it did, what it has done as a stage property is launch uh, the career of many young black actors who, who got to play Lola in sure. this. So I think it's had a, a real, as you, as you say, it's kind of broken a lot of barriers and, and dis the discussions have moved on. It, as you say, it was ahead of its time. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a lot of, a lot of young people have come, come through that now, British actors and... Because and, it's a real, a real life story, isn't it? It's a true story. Yeah, it's, ba yeah, it's based on a, on a, on a true story, um, yeah, of the shoe factory in Northampton. 
So, um, yeah, and I, I mean, that was the thing that's been most, that was most heartening about it, you know, that, it, that, that, that it's life on, as a musical, you know, in the modern age, you know, was, uh, was just so strong and so engaged, you know, and I think that that was the thing about, that's why I say that about the film, that it was a little ahead of its time, that I really feel like if it was, uh, if it was a film we were creating now, it would, or, you know, a few years ago, you know, I think it would have um, really got into the center of the, the, um, the cultural life. In a way. What, I talked about you being young in, in Amistad and having an aging kind of physique to, to Otway. What did it require from Lola, physicality-wise, from you to inhabit that character? Because you've got, with Lola, it's interesting, because she, she, she's dressing up, and then there's the real Lola. There are, there are two sides to every Lola yeah. that you play. What was, the, what was the physicality? It seems that an important part of your, of your craft to get the physicality of the character. Well, for me, it was always just that, you know, Lola has a, has a show, you know, has a, has a stage show in the, uh, in the a sort of a cabaret act in the, in the, in the film. And, and it was really trying to get underneath that, really trying to understand that, understand the sense of, of Lola in, in, as a performer. That was, um, that, and a performer that was hiding something, you know, a performer that needed that performance really to, um, to investigate certain things about self, you know. And, um, and I think that was the element of Lola that I really related to uh, as a character, that I really sort of understood that, sort of tying back to, where I, to the reasons why I was first engaged with, with being on stage, you know, as a way of investigating self, as a way of kind of understanding self. And, um, and so I was, um, I found that very truthful and very engaging about, about Lola. I found it was, you know, it was very powerful. What are, what are the first times you got to do comedy? as well. Actually, you don't get to do that very often, comedy, and it's very sweet seeing it again. Yeah. It's the sort of light that comes on. It really, it's really sparky for you. Yeah, and it's comedy out of, for me, it was good because it's this comedy out of a, of, of a drama, a comedy out of a sort of dramatic or, or an engagingly dramatic mm. circumstance. And I think that that was something that I was, that I really responded to, you know. Um, but yeah, this, uh, when I was reading the script, I just remember laughing out loud, you know, several times and feeling that um, I really kind of understood something about Lola. And that's a very good shade of lipstick on you, by the yeah, way. Thank yeah, you. I think it was. You've got a sort of reflected in your shoes tonight. <laughs> it was carrying a bit of Lola with you. <laughs> it's um, it, the, the, the part got you a Golden Globe nomination because they have the sort of musical categories. There's a wonderful, uh, and it seemed that was a good time to almost launch yourself in the US. You had a real wonderful run of some fantastic US movies. I mean, working with Spike Lee on Inside Man, um, there were, there were, uh, the, the, with Don Cheadle in Talk to Her with the Casey Lemons, which is a film I absolutely love. And yeah. All of these, sort of not including, I don't want to skate over them, but a really exciting period of new films there coming up for you. Yeah, and Children like of Men with Alfonso back here. I was think. here, and um, I think American Gangster was in that period as well with Ridley Denzel. Scott. First time I worked with Ridley Scott and Denzel, yeah. It was a great, yeah, I think it was sort of after working with Stephen Frears, you know, and, uh, and the fact that Dirty Pretty Things had had such an impact in, in the States, you know, for much of the same reason, you know, that it wasn't, that just it was a side of life that people hadn't really been ex exposed to in terms of, uh, in terms of film, and certainly a, a side of London life that people hadn't been exposed to at all. And, and would, would sort of work for New York exactly the same way. Well, exactly, yeah. And, um, and I think that that kind of, this, there, was, there was a certain honesty and a certain rawness in the nature of that film that people really responded to, you know, across the board. And so it meant that when I then went over to the States, 
properly around that time for a little bit, and I, I, I you know, lived in New York, that it, um, that, that was the period when I was sort of working with Woody Allen and then, you know, Spike Lee, as you say, and, you know, and do, and American Gangster. You really ticked them off. Woody and Spike, like Woody and Spike, Woody Allen and Spike Lee, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ridley, and then with, you know, Don Cheadle and Denzel Washington, yeah. really, uh, you know, you were sparring on screen with some, with some great, did that, not raise your game in a way, it was obviously a very high level in a way, did it, but it, did it bring other shades to, the, to, to what you could do and parts that you could do? Totally, you know, I mean, it was, uh, I think it was a real formation period for me of wanting to uh, experience working in film, of realizing the capacity of working in film, the, the, the nature of the directors, the richness of the experiences that you could have of telling these uh, amazingly different stories um, uh, and these, you know, you know, extraordinary voices, these extraordinary detailed cinematic voices. And it's that thing of just like a watchful eye and a powerful voice, you know, and that really was starting to cement for me in that period of just seeing how people approached films um, uh, and just seeing that, that craft and that passion. Uh, uh, Children of Men, absolutely love, and Alfonso Cuaron, obviously one of the great directors at the moment, but all, all of them fantastic. Was there one of those movies, one of those moments when you're, on set, I don't. It, maybe it's with Woody Allen. Maybe it's with Ridley Scott or, or, or Spike. When you're thinking, oh, I, I really, I've always wanted to do this. This is well, a part like this. You know, I'm really kind of. This is what I'm. Well, I, I'm kind of doing what, I, what what my heroes have done. In, in I mean, all of them. I mean, that was the thing. It was you know, um, and it was, you know, all of those parts. They were unique and interesting in their own right. But they also just sort of pushed the boundaries of what my own understanding of, of film was, you know, especially Children of Men, you know, which I thought was a, a, you know, I remember there was a moment when I was shooting Children of Men that somebody came into the room, a sort of a knock on the trailer door, you know, uh, and said, uh, Alfonso has asked if you'd like to come down and watch the rehearsal, you know, but he's saying that you don't, you don't need to. And I said, like, well, if I don't need to, <laughs> you know, I might just stay here. I think it'll be all right. I think I could pick up what's happening, you know, when I get down there. And they said, well, that's fine, you know. Um, and so I stayed in the trailer, you know, whatever, reading the paper. And, and then about, you know, an hour or so, two hours later, you know, I, I came out, you know, said, oh, they're ready for you on set. And so I came down to, and I saw a friend of mine, Paul Sharma, who's in the film as well. Mm. And he was quite shaky. You know, he was sort of like, uh, did you see what happened? <laughs> you know? And I said, no, I don't, I don't, what, what, you know, what's going on? It's like, well, they've got the territorial army down here and they're shooting at us. <laughs> and I thought, well, what do you mean? And it was the sequence. I don't know for anybody who saw the film, there's a, there's a uh, Chivo, Manuel Abetsky, the cinematographer, and, uh, and Alfonso had set up this very long sequence in the film. This very long one-take shot with Clive Owen running around through these buildings, and um, and the group of the Fishers, they were called, are being chased by this army of soldiers. All of this done in real time and played for real action, with the territorial army brought in to do it with you know you know with you know, um, blanks and whatever, but. All of these explosions, all of this sense of very deep realism that's going on in this, in this moment. Uh, us chasing through the streets, people firing weapons left, right, and center. Red-hot shell casings flying everywhere. And me with a sense and a real understanding of the scale and the intention and the dynamism of this moment. But 
terrified because I had no idea that any of this was going to happen. And kind of running this through the streets with Paul Sharma while this was all going on. You know, this kind of amazing awakening, not only of always going to the rehearsal, <laughs> which is the first lesson, but secondly, of just how cinema can continue to push the limitations of itself, you know, and how that is a director's responsibility, to find the ways in which the story can, can move forward, uh, to push the actors, to push the design, to push all aspects of it, you know. Uh, Alfonso, that moment, really, that day, and the shooting that sequence was the first time that I really viscerally, properly understood that responsibility for a filmmaker. And obviously, Alfonso Cuaron is, you know, the filmmaker. He's one of the greats, and that is one of the great shots. And he's a great London movie as well. If you haven't seen uh, Children and Men, I do urge you to see that particular shot. Um, it is it, you know, a great moment of cinema. You have to kind of like this. And I, I remember when I saw you running through that. I think it, this is all, it's breathless, because it's one take. You know, it's an extraordinary bit of propulsive cinema. I mean, amazing, yeah. You, um, not only were you doing those, those movies and understanding cinema, but you did come back to British telly, and there was that wonderful series, The Shadow Line, yeah. uh, which was, again, edge-of-your-seat stuff. But back in the day when high-end telly wasn't quite the, the sort of staple that it is now, I think you almost, you know, you, that was one of those, those things that everyone was talking about, the next episode, I've got to get home to watch The Shadow Line. Yeah. And you kind of did it again with Dancing on the Edge for Stephen Polyakov, yeah. which I thought was... I mean, I remember absolutely loving that and loving your part of Louis Lester, uh, this, this band leader. And I think you'd come back from that, that series of films that you did in America and came back really fully formed as this very suave American band leader. I mean, I don't know if anyone saw Dancing on the Edge. It's the TV one we've chosen because it was so cinematic, but it was about 30s London and it was about that, that edge of veneer as we saw that couple, don't be alarmed. And you had to play the, the, the latent racism of pre-war London, very, very carefully as a character and the script uh, did that for you, I suppose, with Polyakov writing and directing. Yeah, no, I think uh, Stephen had written an amazing script and had, uh, and had been able to sort of judge that time period in a really interesting way, um, you know, that we always think of the world as sort of moving in a kind of linear fashion of sort of more and more progressive or something like that. And, uh, and you know, that's really inverted by some of the discussions that happened in the 1930s, you know, just before the war and before the rise of, of the sort of nationalist thinking in uh, Germany, obviously, but Europe broadly, and then uh, leading into this kind of this war period. And so there was something about Louis Lester in that time where things could have gone in either direction and this sort of r this real rise and focus of, of a liberal movement, mm. you know, uh, and this real kind of energy that was um, that was kind of beginning that obviously would would lend itself much more to the to the 1940s and the 1950s and the kind of beverage era um, but uh, but sort of starting there sort of underneath everything and so there was this real combination of the sort of historical analysis of a time and a period and a kind of racial language um, that was that was sort of playing with this this and playing against a sort of expectation audience audience expectation of the 1930s in a really interesting way in this in this band. And then again, another look at a bit like Dirty Pretty Things, but set you know 60 years before it, 70 years before it. It, it goes under London. It got the 
that hotel where it's all set, the, the Imperial? Yeah, that's right. Imperial. And, but then it's got the, the, the newspaper offices where Matthew Good and Jenna Coleman are, are working. There's this whole new musical express thing going on. And you've got uh, uh, John Goodman as yeah. the sort of rich tycoon and the, the, all the layers of high society Britain. Including monarchy, including this kind of idea of how they are interacting with the kind of, this sort of very elite set of people mm -hmm. and how this sort of polite society is, is reacting and dealing with them and how it slowly drives Louis Lester into this interesting psychology, you know, of uh, a mixture of paranoia, but also of, you know, really understanding the layering of the world that he's in and the complications of it. You know? and, and he floats around as an outsider, eh? the, the, the jazz musician of it means an outsider, but it means, as you say, he's sort of let into high society, but then because he's black, they can easily close those doors. Well, that's, well, I mean, that's essentially what then, what then happens. He is able to enter this society in this dynamic, and then it starts to manipulate him, you know, and, that is, uh, and that's his journey through it, which is part of the kind of, uh, of, of a racial understanding, you know, that he gets. I think that, it does happen in your work. I don't know if it's your particular choices or what people see in you, but they, you, you do represent quite a, a wide diasporic Black experience from Amistad to Otway to Louis Lester. There, I don't. Is that is that something you you look for in a script? How can I represent? How can I reflect a certain experience? It seems important to you. I mean, yeah. even with the African films, which we're going to talk about a bit later. Yeah, I think that I that it is something that I am engaged with. You know, that I am um, um, that I seek to understand further. You know, that um, because. You know, part of the way that I think drama and arts can can work and help and is to open up these discussions and open up these discussions and open up senses of empathy and understanding and therefore kind of improve the nature of the dialogue that we're having um, through sort of specific storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a very rich way of um, of approaching some of the some of the issues. You know that. Um, that I find that I am drawn into those conversations and I am excited by them, you know. Um, that it's not exclusively what I'm excited by, but certainly it engages me, definitely. It seems to me that you redefine what a black actor can do and what a black character can do. They can be Lola, they can be anything you like. Also gifted by your, your wide range, and I'd forgotten this until looking, looking for this life in pictures, a wide range of accents. Yeah, huh? life in accents that you do, you know, American, <laughs> British, you can do a lot of them and there's always a different one. Each character seems to have a, a different one, whether you're doing an American in 2012 or it's an American in the Spike Lee, that you're, you're very adept at that chameleonic jump. It's a different black character, you know what I mean? There's, there's Denzel always does Denzel when he can, but you seem to be a different, different character every time and yet a lead. I don't know. I was told that that's what acting was. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> At a certain point, you know, uh, and I. <laughs> but it, but it is it is interpreted differently in different places and for different people. You know, but that you know, the, to me, I was always excited by that sense of being able to jump into totally different, um, into totally different places and people and you know things and just and to see the world from different points of view you know I was always very excited about that I am envious sometimes of people and uh, and actors who don't do that that much you know who do um, who do sort of 
stick within a certain oeuvre very tightly and very carefully. Um, because I do think that that can produce another kind of acting that is very, very rich. And um, obviously, it's, it's much more popular in, in the States sometimes, that, that style of, um, of, of acting. You know? but, um, but certainly, when I was starting out and that kind of idea of, of theatre and that sort of um, way in, was always about trying to find the truth in very different characters and developing one's kind of empathy along that line. Were you an actor that, that learnt more as you went on by experience, or did you study? Did you have you know, coaching? Did you have different teachers and learn various skills from various directors as you went along, a certain stillness or a certain thing you can do in a close-up and the way to do an action movie, all those different layers that you need? I mean, it's a bit of both. I mean, you, I think you get the information from wherever you can get it from. A lot of the information is, of course, sort of vocational and just sort of being on set, doing it, seeing what works. You know, there's that feeling of watching something that you've done and realizing that maybe you made a choice that was not the best choice you could have made or it was a slightly obvious choice or something like that and making that kind of mental note to adjust that and to, to dig deeper next time, to, to look further through, through the options that you that you have. I think that that's always the kind of, you know, that's the sort of, I think that's the journey of being an actor, you know, is always trying to balance that and then really trying to understand what kind of research you can do and the sort of meta thinking of like really sitting down to work out how best to approach a part is actually half of the research, you know. Um, so all of those things I think kind of combine. I mean, directors certainly, but also, you know, just one's own kind of mechanism, one's own engine to try different things, to, um, to, um, to reach for another kind of truth, you know. Is there any actors out there, is there one key lesson that, you, that clicked for you on how to be a screen actor? I mean, one key Just lesson, one. Yeah. interesting. Um, I don't know if there is one key lesson on, on how to be a screen actor. I think that the um, I think that for me, when I understood the value, you know, I suppose I always knew, in a broad sense, the value of research. But I didn't um, I didn't know that that it's a kind of there's a totality of looking at a script, looking at the, an era, looking at a time, reading around something, where. Absolutely nothing that you learn about a part or about a place or about a time. Um, nothing is lost. You know, all of the things that you learn and research when you're reading around a part, all of it goes in somehow. All of it is present in, the, in a kind of mysterious way on screen when you look back on, 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 the, um, on the project. Um, that it is a very full part of the experience, you know, that it's obviously very engaging to do that, but it's also very rewarding. A full research period on anything is, uh, I think, is, is a crucial thing that I didn't know always, you know. Mm. I, didn't, I just didn't have that information um, for a lot of time, so I would do some work on things and read around it, you know, a little bit, but I wouldn't take a deep dive into understanding all of these other aspects that seemingly were nothing to do with the part. Um, uh, and then when I started to do that, I realized that actually it informed what I was doing in a much more, in a much richer and sort of more th three-dimensional yeah. way. Every look, every, every close-up, I think you're a, a fantastic actor in close-up. 
wide shot, rubbish, but <laughs> close up, close up, marvelous. Listen, I asked that, and you set that up beautifully because the next film we're going to look at is 2013's 12 Years a Slave. Now, I don't know how much research you needed to do for Solomon Northup, but you had a, a book that he'd written. He was a real life character. You had centuries of slavery to look at. The, it, it seemed to me that every character you played, all those experiences we talked about, even starting way back in Amistad, were leading to, to this work with Steve McQueen, this masterful work and a fantastic performance, masterful performance, if I may say. Um, I don't, talk, talk us through it as an actor, what, what, you, what you had to go through all of those things, because an entire life is played out in that three minutes. Yeah, I just, I mean, it was, you know, that, uh, you know, shooting on those kind of real plantations and that, in that, uh, in that heat was, uh, was just incredible, you know. Um, really getting a sense of that of that place and that that kind of space and the um, and that sort of psychological trauma was so uh, um, was 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 so deeply involving, you know, um, uh, and was so kind of full of the ghosts of it, mm -hmm. you know, just being there being in Louisiana, being on those real houses and plantations and that real sense of, of place and space. And, uh, and, that, and that sequence being this very detailed, very kind of complex mixture of all of these uh, emotions and exactly as you say, you know, him turning from Platt into Solomon, you know, in, in sort of real time and understanding his own his own past and um, and rearranging his mind to understand that he did have a future again, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, at, at, a, at, a, at a kind of, I think all of the days of, of shooting on that plantation were painful and 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 rich and um, deeply emotional, mm -hmm. uh, um, and. Um, you know, and sort of wonderful in their own in their own way. It hurts. It still shocks every time I hear Michael Fassbender say that word. Did it hurt you every time he said it? I mean, I think we were so deep in context of the kind of um, of the emotional journey of the reality of that experience that um, of that of that sort of brutality, um, you know, that kind of psychological. Damage and um, and physical damage, um, and that understanding that they're all damaged, mm -hmm. including you know um, Fassbender's character Epps, you know um, himself hated in Louisiana by whites and blacks alike as a as a person. Um, I think I was told that there's still people there who say you're being an Epps, you know. Um, <laughs> So, oh, unfortunately, that someone has to. Yeah. They still use that word. It's um, it's an extraordinary bit of filmmaking from Steve McQueen. That sequence in particular, the, the knowing when to leave the shots, knowing when to, to cut and go from your face to Lupita's face, to going from your keeping it on your face, um, and and the, the the heft of Solomon that then emerging out of plat out of that costume. And, saying, I am who I am, and, and, and suddenly remembering his past. You said at the start that he remembered he's got a future, but he also suddenly remembered his past, knew it exactly, had buried all of that. It was coming out. 
Yeah. It's a, 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 a fantastic performance. Thank you. Um, when you got the script, you must have known that this was something special for you. I mean, I did. I, I you know, it was, an, it was an interesting period of time for me. You know, I, when I first read the script, you know, my, my immediate reaction surprised me, you know, that I didn't immediately say yes, you know. I mean, Steve McQueen still says that I said no, but I didn't say no. I just didn't say yes, it was, you know, there's a, a difference. I because? Just, it, it was, I was worried about it, you know. I didn't know whether I had, it, the, the weight of the story, the importance of the story, the unique nature of the story, there had never really been a film from inside this experience before, from inside the slave experience, from deep within that experience, told narratively, you know, um, uh, and told from the POV of somebody who had gone through it. And, um, and you know, my, my first instinct was self-doubt. Am I the person who can tell this story? Am, can I do it? You know, do, do I want to be the person who isn't able to tell this story to its fullness and to its richness? Um, I feel like maybe I can give it a go, but I'm worried about it, you know. Um, and so I took a beat. I just sort of, I said, you know, I just need a bit of time to, um, to really go back to the book, to read the memoir again, to, to really see if I can find my way into, this, into the psychology of this, to, um, to, sort of, to sort of begin to understand it um, in a way that I feel comfortable that I can perform in, in, in this sense, in something of this, of this weight. Mm. Um, and I did, you know, I went back to the, the, the memoir and I, and there were things that I felt that I just was able to connect to in Solomon Northup. You know, uh, the, the, the man himself, yeah. what was it? I think it was just the nature of, there was a certain attitude that he had to certain things, you know, that I felt were very, um, um, that just felt very honest. And th in that way that there was nothing stretched in his, you know, that kind of Huck Finn way, there was nothing stretched in his ideas. He wasn't trying to reach, there was a kind of humility. He wasn't trying to reach for people to feel particularly sympathetic to his experience, you know. Uh, he was just trying to sort of tell the facts of what happened to him in as in a simpler form as he could. And that also kind of included descriptions of the different kinds of work he was doing and how different kinds of work made him feel. He didn't like picking cotton. He would he preferred cutting down trees because he felt a bit more free he felt freer because of the physicality involved in the in the lumber industry than in than in the cotton industry and and those kinds of distinctions, those kind of really human moments of understanding within this kind of circumstance, this extraordinary circumstance, these monumental struggles, unimaginable challenges, mm. felt so human, felt so humble, felt so kind of, um, just felt very real to me. And that's and just the way in. It's, it's such a massive experience, such a massive world experience, a holocaust of some sort for, for many, many people that scarred 20th century, 19th century, 18th century civilization. Yeah. To go in, you need a way in, don't you? You, need you can't try to tell the totality of the experience. And that's where I had made the mistake, that I thought that that's what Steve McQueen was asking me to do. You know, but he wasn't. He was asking me to tell um, Solomon Northup's experience. Yeah. And that was the difference. It, it is a, one, a wonderful performance. In fact, it, the impact of the film, I mean, obviously when it was 
on, everyone was amazed, but it, it has a legacy, goes on with it, does it not? It has an impact beyond just being a movie. The fact that it was a successful movie, the fact that it won BAFTA's Oscars, for example, the fact that many people have seen it and know it, it has changed many people's attitudes or given them an insight that they perhaps couldn't have before. Well, that's the power of, of cinema. That's the power of storytelling, you know, uh, when it works on that kind of level that, um, that the world, you can see the world anew, you know, and you understand different perspectives in a completely different way. You empathize in ways you never knew you could because you have information. You have understanding, you know, and that's what I mean when I say that as a, as, a, as a film, to tell a story from inside of an experience awakened a lot of people to things that maybe they half knew or half suppressed, you know, but it was, it was presented in a way they could really <coughs> understand and empathize with and realize certain things about obviously the past, but about the present that they had no access to. And that's one of the extraordinarily powerful things about, about the medium. I wonder, without 12 Years of Slavery and its success, would we have Black Klansman, Black Panther becoming such mainstream big successes, Oscar nominees, BAFTA nominees, having that, 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 that consciousness, that, well, Black Panther in particular being able to, to have that, the commercial heft and the confidence to, to be what it is? Well, I mean, the, in big and small ways, you know, it had... The, uh, it had this, this the, 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 the impact that it had. You know, it had that very direct impact. I remember, you know, Barry Jenkins was uh, doing the Q and A for Twelve Years a Slave when we, when we were doing um, when we were in Telluride, for example. Before he'd made Moonlight. Before he made Moonlight, and that was where he really got into the conversation with uh, Dee Dee Garden and Jeremy Klein and all at Plan B, and they really started to hatch this idea of doing Moonlight. So in very kind of literal ways, connections were made through Twelve Years a Slave, but also obviously the filmmaking, a couple of hundred million dollars, you know, worldwide, gave people a lot of confidence in the nature of this um, of of black cinema to kind of. You know, I'd never really thoroughly, you know, probably believe this whole sort of notion of, you know, oh, black films don't sell in Europe, don't sell abroad, and that being a way of kind of closing down the um, the industry in a sense. But um, but even if one didn't believe that or had or believed it or whatever, you know, it certainly ended part of that conversation, ended part of that argument. You know, people clearly were were hungry for for different points of view, for for engaging in a different way. With um, with a cinematic experience and what it might inform inform and, uh, and and you know just sort of engage people with. I think as a you know as a career achievement, twelve years I say for everyone involved is always going to be a high. And you think, well, how do I how do I top that? How do I continue that and deepen that? And you actually took on you know fascinating projects that again come full circle. Are very personal to a half of the Yellow Sun about the Biafran War in Nigeria with Tandy Newton, which is a gorgeous film, which we saw a clip of at the start with John Boyega. Who's he? Um, <laughs> a, a young John Boyega right in, in, in your movie, bringing on another generation of uh, superb black British actors with that confidence that they have. They're so good. John Boyega's so good. Amazing, like, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Letitia Wright as well, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and now here you are directing 
and starring. I knew all those great directors, all those great stars you work with, and then you come in with the, the Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Congratulations, Chibitel's just you know directed and starred in his, in his first feature debut, uh, which is in cinemas this weekend on Netflix from March the first. Congratulations on um, that. A beautiful film. It's 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 everything that, that's Chibitel. It's political. It's environmental. It's sweet. It's African. It's inspirational. Uh, it, it's all packed into this to this to this tale. Tell us how you found the story and, and why you chose to say right. This is my chance to direct it and be in it. Yeah, I, I read the book uh, about uh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, uh, William Kamgwamba's story of his own experience. You know, uh, he, he co-authored he co it with uh, Brian Miller, a journalist. And, um, and it, it sort of tells the story of his experience in Malawi in 2001, 2002, when he was about 13 years old. And, um, and what happened at that time was due to a, a massive flooding in the area of Kasungu and that surrounding region in Malawi, and then a drought, a subsequent drought. The, um, the price of grain rocketed up after that harvest, and a lot of people were kind of abandoned by um, polit uh, politicians and so on uh, as a famine started to arrive in this, in this area and in, in this region. Um, William Kamkwamba was taken out of school because he was, um, well, school isn't free in Malawi, and he was at school, and so he was taken out, and the whole community kind of hunkered down, preparing for the worst. He started sneaking into school uh, to sort of, he started sneaking into the library and uh, trying to get into the school, and he found a, an American textbook called Using Energy, and on the front of it was a picture of, of a windmill. Uh, and so he started to, using the book and just sort of picking up any scraps of metal that he could find and anything that was sort of left around in this very kind of resource-poor kind of area, he started to build a, a wind turbine so that he could um, power a water pump and, um, and, and uh, irrigate the land to get his family out of this, this situation. And so he ended up writing the book about his experience, and I just was floored by it when I, when I read it back when it came out. Um, you know, a story of such tenacity and hope and inspiration and um, optimism, really. And, uh, and I was just so moved to engage with it. And so I wanted to see if I could create a film of this, of this story. And people said, well, you, of course you can direct it if you want to. Well... Kind of. I mean, there was it. Sta that started to move fairly quickly. I, I was I was engaged in adapting this, the the um, the screenplay, and um, and so in that period, and then going back and forth to Malawi to meet William Kamkwamba, introduced to that community, and started to um, really engage there. And it and I started to write the script with the with the sort of visual sense of it, with an understanding of it. I started to make directorial choices very early on in the script writing process. Um, even really knowing that we were going to shoot there. We ended up shooting right where the story happens, in, in Wimbe, in Kasungu. I almost shot in his house. I would have shot in his house if, uh, if he, well, if he, he did so much innovation on his house, basically, in the subsequent years that it didn't seem like the same place, really. tinkering. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so I ended up shooting in his neighbor's house. Yeah. But it was really that sort of choice of really trying to have this very authentic In his language. Experience. In Chichewa, yeah, which is a, a language which of, you didn't speak, which I didn't speak. So, having that process of engaging with the language of, of you know, starting to to learn it on that uh, in that level and just in in detail with some of the other cast and having people from Malawi that were, that are in the cast as well and creating this kind of family and um, 
um, and just beginning that process, you know, a sort of, um, you know, tr attempting to have a very authentic relationship. To it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful film, and also for kids as well. I, my son watched it, and he was, because it was about a boy who harnessed the wind, and yeah. it's got that African fairy tale, that tradition versus modernity, progress versus tri and tribalism, everything is in there. You must have thought, hey, this is, this is, this is me. There must have been that connection. Everything you've done is, is in there. Yeah, it was the story that I never knew that I was kind of looking for my whole life. And I, you know, um, and there it was. You know, it had all of the things that I, that I had always connected to, that I'd always connected to about, you know, obviously Nigeria is very, very different from Malawi and the rural areas are very different. But there are similarities and there are these um, extraordinary distinctions to explore as well and these kind of family dynamics and this Ooh. sort of realism and understanding and, um, and the sense of place. Um, and these, these struggles and these generational struggles, exactly as you say, and understanding those things and trying to kind of relate them cinematically, I just thought was a very, uh, it was a challenging but a kind of wonderful experience for me. Well, we wish you the best of luck with it, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if anyone's seen that yet. I'm, I'm lucky because I have. Uh, I do urge you to do so. You can do so. Uh, but what you can also do uh, is ask Chiwetel some questions yourself. I've been hogging him for far too long. I'm sure there are some questions. Uh, there's a woman there with a, a lightning quick hand. I mean, I think we have glamorous assistants winging their way towards you. So just wait for the microphone so that you can. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering, with all of your characters that you've played, they've had so much weight with them and a lot of responsibility, and the the, the stories have got so much of incredible subject matters. But I'm wondering, what was the most fun set you ever worked on as an actor, and what elements did you want to bring to your own set when you were directing? Great, yeah. Um, That's a good you. question. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the, I think that there's, you know, there were fun sets. I mean, definitely Kinky Boots was a highlight in terms of like having having fun and really engaging in a in a story and a character in in that way. Uh, and then I think there was also there have been sets that I felt were kind of fun in a different in a different way. And I and I and I and I would refer back to again to uh, Alfonso Cuaron and 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 Children of Men, which was. Um, which was just fun in the sense that it was constantly engaging, you know, just really never knowing what was going to happen and, you know, just where things were going to turn and just felt incredibly kind of alive. And, um, and that's the kind of energy, that sort of febrile energy that he was really kind of going for, uh, just um, performance, performers that were kind of slightly off guard and so therefore really engaged in different things. And I wondered whether... There was some of that that I, not that I was necessarily trying to bring to the boy who wanted to win, but I wasn't, it made me less, it made me less engaged in sort of having to define structures, you know, um, that I realized that actually you can take the stabilizers off, you know, on a set and you can allow people a certain amount of just, uh, allowing things to happen is a, is a positive energy. Um, setting up the environment of things happening and being kind of careful with that, but then on set just sort of allowing a kind of freedom to the experience and, and, and capturing stuff on, on, in that way was a, was a great lesson to learn from, from working on that film. Thank you. Uh, this, so we'll come down here. Have you got any advice for young black people like me from the south of London um, on how to expand in acting? You know, because a lot of uh, young folks like me think we have to run and fly to America and just make it happen. But 
Yeah, um, well, the, um, so there's, there's kind of a lot there, you know, because it is something that I think about a lot, you know, just how to, what are the best ways of, um, of, of engaging in a conversation about progress and progress in this industry and allowing younger people into uh, an industry that is complicated and difficult, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and the nature of opportunities, you know, and that sense of Britain, UK, and America, um, which I think there is, there are times a kind of healthy, there has been a kind of healthy relationship or a sort of way that people have gone over to the States and then come back and that's informed the nature of things here and that's kind of, that has been quite useful as well and I think it has progressed things in the UK. But I do feel, I do worry a little bit about people feeling that, that they kind of have to abandon the UK sort of immediately and that is the beginning of their the beginning, at the beginning of their career, they feel like, especially young black actors and actresses, you know, just feeling, well, I'm not going to get the opportunities in the UK. Um, you know, it's all going to be sort of costume dramas that don't include me. So, um, you know, uh, I, I need to follow in the footsteps of people like Chiwetel and David Yellower and so on, uh, Idris, and go over to the States and therefore I can make it. And, I, and my worry about that is, even though I may have been part of that, psychology, that, that it creates a kind of drain on the talent pool in the UK. So one of the things that I'm concerned about and one of the things that I kind of want to uh, engage with is the ways in which I can try to, to open up opportunities as a, as a writer, as a director, and so on, uh, as a producer, you know, just uh, that, that also engage opportunities here for, for, for another generation. I, what I feel is that, that a lot of that centers around a sort of communal sense of, um, of changing the nature of the attitude with how we view inclusion in the arts, yeah. you know, and that we do see it collectively as a kind of long-term project that involves everybody, that involves our entire kind of artistic community. Um, one of the things that worries me is this kind of propensity at the moment to look at everything as a kind of data analysis, a year-to-year -year data analysis, without really engaging with what are our common values in terms of art and our artistic life. You know, how do we find the connection and the empathy to really engage larger communities of people in the artistic story? And that would then influence who's writing, who's directing, who's out doing... Uh, doing plays, who's doing all those things. I think that that's, that's a sort of story for the wider artistic community in a way. But what I hope that that encourages and what I want to be part of the conversation in is that it encourages young black people, young black actors and actresses to stay in the UK and to work in the UK and to try and find ways of encouraging that to happen and, um, and people to sort of support that sense of, of diversity. That's, that's, the, that's the essential point. Otherwise, that is, a, that is the worry, and that is the, that's what's on offer, it seems, you know, just to kind of abandon, um, abandon that process, which I think is a shame. That's such a... I, I've got thousands more questions, but we, we, we do have to move on. I do think that's such an inspirational and, and, and such a chewitel edge for answer. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be it. It'll trip off the tongue soon. That uh, I think this is where it was. And I think that what we've seen in your life of pictures is how you've negotiated all of those barriers. 
and, and knocked down those barriers and transcended them and become global and uh, that your colour, your, your, your background doesn't matter. He's acting in all of these things. And I think that's um, it's a great question and I think it's a, a, a superb and inspirational answer. See the boy who harnessed the wind for more details on that and, <laughs> and how he's doing it. Uh, but it remains for me to thank you, the audience, and of course, our guest on BAFTA's Life in Pictures, Chiwetel Ejiofor.